Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. What's up, SGS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in true crime. And tonight, uh, among the most liked, this trio, I would say best guests, better community. And uh, of course, tonight, we were supposed to be analyzing Don Adelson's courtroom hearing that was scheduled for today, but uh, horrific weather uh, has been kind of going through the south all the way up toward where uh, Kathy Monkman Hyam, otherwise known as Katie Kool-Aid, is all the way in Pennsylvania. So uh, no court today for Donna, but we've got three bright minds to cover and pick up uh, where we left off last night. Um, of course, Donna Adelson uh, now facing the same charges as her son, Charlie Adelson, in the murder and conspiracy to commit murder of a uh, legal scholar, FSU law professor Dan Markell. Of course, Charlie Adelson sentenced to life in Florida. They say life is life. He will be there for the rest of his uh, natural days unless something happens with an appeal, which we're going to focus on with uh, Katie Kool-Lady, who has dealt with that for a big portion of her own life. Um, and of course, Donna, uh, her court date now rescheduled for January 30th. So we will be all over that. Without further ado, our best guest, Stephen Webster, you know him well, and Louis Baptiste. They are partners at Webster and Baptiste, attorneys at law in Tallahassee. Uh, they do yeoman's work there. Steve uh, was also Dan Markell's post-divorce attorney, and Louis was Dan Markell's one-time law student. And then, as I mentioned, Katie Kool-Lady, whose real name is Kathy Monkman Hyam. She lost her sister to a homicide 30-plus years ago and has been dealing with all of the issues uh, through the appellate process since then for uh, the perpetrator of that crime. And uh, she will tell you how difficult that is in just a moment. Quick reminder, not going to harp on it tonight. The book is out. Pre-orders are available on Amazon.com. I cannot believe that. And uh, Carmen and I right now, we're conspiring ourselves on a book tour and promotion for the book, and we will keep you informed all the way. But it is available on Amazon. Um, I know this is a long intro, but I just wanted to fill you in because we've kind of made a commitment in 2024 to bring you some more um, high-profile trials. And there is a trial uh, that is going to start this Thursday. It is the Jennifer Farber Dulos murder out of Stamford, Connecticut. A lot of weird similarities against the Markell case. This is an incredibly affluent couple. They were divorced in a massive custody battle over their five children. And uh, she winds up dead, presumed dead. Her body was never found. The ex-husband commits suicide as he's awaiting trial. Well, he had a living girlfriend. Uh, her na name is Michelle Traconis, and she goes on trial Thursday, and we're going to have live coverage and analysis of opening statements. And the trial, believe it or not, is expected to last until March. So uh, we're going to bring you a lot of days of the trial. And uh, if we don't have analysis, it will be sort of an STS watch party each and every day uh, of that trial. We'll keep you posted. Another trial we're following is the OnlyFans murder that is in Miami, Christian Obumselli. So two shows tomorrow. He is the victim in this case. His civil defense attorney is coming on the show tomorrow at four. So we are going to do a show at four with his attorney. That's the Courtney Clenny OnlyFans murder. And then at 7 p.m., we are going to do an intro 
to the entire Jennifer Farber Dulos murder that happened back in 2019. Again, a long wait for justice as a trial is beginning in that case. Um, so keep your eyes open for that. And I will have uh, information on Twitter at podcast STS and on Instagram at surviving the survivor. It is official. Dan Rashbaum, he didn't have enough with Charlie Adelson and his conviction. He is coming back as lead counsel for Donna Adelson. Uh, he's going to be joined by a Tallahassee attorney, Robert Alex Morris, who is, like I said, co-counsel from Tallahassee. Stephen Webster, are you surprised at all to hear that Daniel Rashbaum from Miami is coming back for part two? I am. It's really atypical uh, for the way we practice here in North Florida. Um, you know, typically speaking, an attorney would, wouldn't risk having a conflict of interest arise um, in a case by representing multiple co-defendants, especially when they're so, um, one's already gone to trial and been convicted. Uh, you know, there is a realistic possibility that at some point the state could approach Dan and say, hey, we would like an opportunity to talk to Charlie and see what he could maybe offer us against, you know, for Donna, and it would create an immediate conflict of interest that he would have to withdraw from the case. And I, um, and from both of their representations and I don't understand it quite frankly. Um, you know, if, uh, I suppose if it's not a problem, it's not a problem. It's just not, in my opinion, the best way to approach the practice of law is walking into a minefield that, you know, is a real potential minefield and just hoping that you don't step on a mine. Um, because if you do, it, it disadvantages the client significantly and it disadvantages the court, the court's docket, you know, because now you're talking about delay and new counsel and all of the issues that arise there. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really surprised and I don't agree with it. And Lewis, to you, I cannot tell you, by the way, congrats on your uh, wedding you. and I uh, hope you enjoyed your honeymoon. Um, congrats on all of that. But um you know, I can't tell you the number of emails and tweets and I've been getting about uh, questions related to Daniel Rashbaum coming back saying, how can he even do this? Isn't this a conflict of interest? Uh, one of the questions that was posed to me is what if hypothetically Charlie and Donna were tried together? They could never have the same attorney. They would have to have separate counsel. It's almost akin to that. So how is it possible that he can now defend uh, you know, another family member back to back here. I think there's no question that Charlie had to sign a waiver. I think absent Charlie signing a waiver that uh, it would have been impossible for Rashbaum to represent Donna. I think that um, the conflict or the right to representation does, doesn't belong to the court. Uh, it doesn't belong to the prosecutor. Uh, it belongs to the individual client. So theoretically, if Charlie and Donna decide to waive that right um, and they accept the risk of a conflict, then there are some cases that suggest that uh, those two parties could rate, could waive the conflict. So what I think we have here is I think it's clear that Donna has um, Donna and Charlie have both signed waivers. Uh, which is the only way, the only legally, legally permissible way under the professional rules of conduct that a rash bomb could come back and attempt to represent Donna. Uh, so there's a waiver in place, uh, according to Lewis. Uh, Katie Kool-Aid, you and I are the two non-lawyers here, so let's talk law for a minute. What do you think about this decision um, that 
you know, Daniel Rashbaum was coming back. You and I were in the courtroom. I think you were there for the entire thing. I was there for much of it. Um, he had, you know, he did his job. Obviously, it was a really difficult case. I think a lot of people in Tallahassee thought maybe he was a little too abrasive, a little too uh, histrionic at times. But what do you make of him coming back for this uh, second trial now or this next trial, I should say? You know, I mean, I, I guess I toss the question back to these lawyers, because what is curious to me is what is motivating him, because it was a massive fail, the first trial, not only in the courtroom. I mean, he had a very quick verdict. You could call it a slam dunk. I mean, I think it was a slam dunk case against him. He did not do well. He did not perform well. And he also didn't perform well in the court of public opinion with peers. And so what would motivate him? And it you know, by all accounts, it kind of looks like he might be going with the same ridiculous defense theory. And he kind of just looks dumb. You know, he doesn't. And, and I felt like watching the trial every day of it, that he was out of his depth. I didn't think that he performed very well in the courtroom. I, I you know, I've said this a million times, but he completely abdicated jury selection to those jury consultants. He sat second chair didn't even introduce himself to the jury until he was standing up to give opening statements. I thought he looked weak. I, I just didn't think he would perform well. So, I mean, my question is to these attorneys who know better than me is like, like personally and professionally, what would motivate him to step back into something that was such a colossal fail? Steve Webster, you want to grab that? By the way, before we get to that, and that's a great question. I'm glad Katie's here to ask it. How's the weather in Tallahassee today? There was no school, no court. Steve Webster, there were there were a significant number of tornadoes, but uh, all is well in your neighborhood in Lewis, in your neighborhood, Steve. Yes, it, we were. We had some good wind. It was it was pretty intense there in, in in my neighborhood for a little bit, but we're fine. Thankfully, we avoided damage. Good, and you've got power, and uh, people are upset. The bovine has been replaced by the scales of justice. But back to Katie's question: What do you think? Uh, you know, I guess the obvious answer is money, right? Uh, they're dishing out a ton of dough, but <laughs> any other motivating factors here? I, I feel like there is a very close connection uh, between Donna and Daniel Rashbaum, uh, besides just the money. But what do you think? I, I think that is true. I think. I don't know how long they've been working together, but I do get the impression it's been several years before Charlie was even arrested that he started kind of building a relationship. And I, I think that the relationship does go beyond just professional. I think he's convinced himself that they're probably innocent. I know it sounds weird sitting here, but, you know, um, you know, on some levels, if you're sitting there meeting with a periodontist who's accused of murder and you look at the evidence, you're like, wow, this guy's guilty. But then after a year of meeting with him and talking to him and, and you're seeing the human side of him, at some point you start thinking, how could this guy have done that? You know, and then you start thinking, how, how could he? And then as soon as you open that door for the possibility, you start looking for reasons to convince yourself that it can't be true. This, this guy that sits in my office and seems like a normal person every day, he can't possibly have been involved in this. And his sweet little mom over there, no way his mom involved in this. So I think that that's what happened. I don't I don't think when they walked in the door that Dan was convinced they were innocent. I think over time he did become convinced. He believes this narrative. I think he does. You know, I I think on some levels it maybe blinds him to what I see it as. I see it as a concoction that's the only concoction they could come up with to explain why Charlie Abelson gave $138,000 to the people that killed the man that he referred to as the worst mistake his sister ever made on the day that he was murdered. 
Um, and, you know, for me, I just can't come back from that ever. But um, I will say this, Katie, like I, I thought that Dan did as, as good a job as he could do. I mean, you know, I would do things differently here and there. We all have our own styles. Um, you know, he went in there, he tried the case. I'm presuming that he tried the defense that it was given to him by Charlie Abelson. Um, and if that's what your client gives you as the facts, you know, it's your job to try to present those facts as well as you can. Um, you know, I, that being said, you know, I wasn't one of the people in the legal community here who who really felt like he did a bad job. I think I said on the show, I thought he did, you know, as good a job as he could do uh, with what he had. I do think the jury verdict was a slam dunk. There's no two ways about that. Um, they took lunch. And I think they took an initial vote and it was over. They came right back and, and walked into the courtroom, filled out the, the verdict form. But I will say I still stand by waiver or no waiver. Representing these two defendants is perilous at best. And it's, it's a risk that is, in my mind, there is no justification for taking it. Because even though you sign that waiver, that doesn't mean an irreconcilable, irreconcilable conflict can arise. And then once it does, it sets the wheels of justice back and it disadvantages the clients. And it's a risk that is just not worth taking in my mind. And Lewis, something just popped in my head. So we had Bob Mata Jr. on the show last week, a really interesting episode. His father was a criminal defense attorney for notorious serial killer John Wayne Gacy. And I asked him what his father has to say about that case today, all these years later. You know, he was executed in the early 90s, 94, I believe, but went to trial in like 82. And he said that uh, his father says it ruined his career. Um, people didn't want to be associated with him. Is there the possibility that Daniel Rashbaum is diving into very deep water here and it could taint his career moving forward, you know, assuming he loses again, which is not a given, but if he does lose, could this be a, you know, career ending injury for him, if you will? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think that this case is such a, is such a slam dunk case for the prosecutor because of the great work and the prep work that the FBI, TPD, the state attorney's office has done that in the defense world, uh, it's like what Webster was just saying. You know, he didn't do a bad job. He did it. I went to trial. I watched him. I watched him on cross. I watched him on direct. I watched him argue objections. Um, I don't think he did a bad job. I think that this is a horrible case because they murdered Dan. And I think that. Um, and so defense lawyers and people recognize that he's honestly in a not bad predicament. I think he's in exact opposite situation in that. It's harder to represent someone you really believe is innocent and it looks like that person is innocent. When it's a close call, those are the hard cases, right? Because you should have won. You were supposed to win. What happened? How did you lose? How did the jury come back so fast? In those cases where it's a super close call, it's tough to represent somebody because you know the pressure is 7X, 8X. In this case where in Charlie's case, particularly, where there were not a mountain, mountains of evidence against him, audio, recordings, Dolce Vita. I mean, you're just talking about slam dunk evidence against Charlie that, you know, you go and lose that. Hey, what could you know, he can go to the bar and tell his partners, hey, what was I supposed to do? You know, <laughs> uh, you know, Johnny Cochran couldn't win that case. You know, 
what could I do? You know what I mean? Not even the glove doesn't fit. You must have quit could save, you know, Charlie Adelson. And so I think that he's actually in a unique predicament where, you know, he now we expect him to go lose Donna's case. The expectation is that he's going to lose. So if he loses, guess what? He was expected to. If he wins, he just pulled the rabbit out the hat. I did what no one else could do. But if it, 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 if if I if he loses, everyone deserves due process. I gave them due process. I did my job. Everyone's entitled to a good defense. I think that he's actually in a unique position in that um, he's expected to lose. So anything, if he gets an acquittal, if he gets a hung jury, anything except a total guilty verdict, and he did a good job based on the metrics of him expecting to lose. So uh, real quick, a lose-lose for Donna could be a win-win for Rashbaum. Go right ahead, Stephen. Well, I see I'm real skeptical and cynical, right? So I see the other side of that. I see the coin where Dan didn't want some other attorney to come in, right? And then what if they win, right? Mm -hmm. Then what does it look like for Dan, right? So if he allows Donna unfettered access to choose her own attorney, what if? She chooses somebody who comes in with a different approach and they win. Then what are the political, you know, the uh, the professional ramifications for Dan? And that's the cynical part of me that looks at and says, where where are his interests? Are they really in protecting his clients or are there other some other motivations? Yeah, Maybe, well, if I go ahead. Yeah, no, no, go, go, go ahead. Go ahead. If, if, I, no, if I could, I think that. See. I don't think that he was motivated by Donna really, really wanting him or it was that, you know, he didn't want another lawyer to come in and win. I think this was a money decision, meaning that if we know what, you know, how this worked originally, he was originally retained by the entire family. Right. Is what my understanding was. He was retained by the Adelsons. Charlie got popped first. So he represented Charlie because that's who got popped first. Right. That's who was arrested first. So I think he's in a situation where now Donna came and saw this new lawyer perform or not perform, <laughs> you know, whatever you call it. Yeah. And she's like, she goes back and says, look, I paid Rashbaum. We hired you. You know what I mean? And so I really think there's a chance. There's a small chance that, you know, he's in a tough situation contractually. I think there's a chance, you know, that he nec- he, he, he didn't really want this case. I think there's a chance he could have been stuck in it. You know, based on the fact that he was retained by Donna and I don't know what type of I don't know what type of agreement he signed, but we all know that he was paid a whole lot of money by the Adelsons. And if I was an Adelson and I paid him a whole lot of money and now I saw this lawyer perform in court, you know, at a hearing, I don't want her and 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 I'm not going to go spend another million dollars on another lawyer. Hey, come earn your money. You're not done yet. I think there's a small chance that. Um, he's he could be in a tough predicament. I think there's a small chance. And the last thing I'll say is, Judge Everett, I was just in court, I'm just in court, about five months ago, and Judge Everett had a unique situation. I think he's the only judge in our circuit to deal with it, where the prosecutor's office filed a motion to disqualify a defense attorney because he was representing two co-defendants at the same time. And judge and, and experts were called, um, and Judge Everett, the judge in this case, held two hearings on it and subsequently disqualified that defense attorney. Even though both defendants had signed conflict waivers, he still ruled based on the state's motion that that defense attorney 
um, is what Webster is saying. There was irreconcilable conflicts. There was irreconcilable conflict that even a waiver couldn't get around. Now, the only thing about that case was they were active co-defendants, which means they were both being tried at the same time. I think in this situation, it's a little unique. And outside of that square is because here, uh, it, Charlie's already been convicted. And so they're not co-defendants and they're not being tried in the same case. And so yeah. I'd like to see if whether or not the state decides to you know, file a motion like that. And I'm coming back to you, Katie, I promise. But Stephen Webster, to uh, the point that Lewis just made, there's uh, we know jailhouse calls between Donna and Charlie, and she alludes to the fact that Dan Rashbaum was giving her ideas, suggestions, let's put it that way, about how to get out of Dodge, how to get to Vietnam. Um, and on the show last night, Tim Jansen said that's something the state could potentially raise as a conflict of interest. Do you think that we see that potentially? I don't know. I, I'm really, I'm honestly so puzzled by the whole scenario. I understand everything Lewis is saying is legally correct, you know, but there is still the flip side to it that he has a duty to his clients. You know, for instance, um, he, what if Charlie raises, and I know you want to get to the appeal. What if Charlie raises as one of the appellate issues, the issue that Dan failed to preserve appellate issues by objecting? by raising contemporaneous objections as an attorney is required to do to preserve appellate issues. We must object contemporaneously with the objectionable inf you know, information and give the court an opportunity to correct it or to grant a mistrial, whatever the case may be, unless the error is fundamental. That's our responsibility as an attorney. Well, you know, I've heard the jail phone calls where Charlie's talking about the fact that Georgia Kappelman, she introduced all of this evidence into the closing argument that, that weren't facts that were in evidence in trial, that she introduced false information to the jury in her closing argument. But you know what I didn't hear? I didn't hear Dan Rashbaum objecting. Now, I wouldn't have objected either. Lewis knows this. As an attorney, objecting and closing argument is it's a surefire way to lose a jury. So as an attorney, I know why Dan wasn't objecting if that did happen. I don't know that it did. But even assuming that it did, I can understand why the lawyer wouldn't do that tactically. But Charlie is on spin cycle in the jail phone calls on the fact that Georgia Kappelman brought up all these Ryan Fitzpatrick's my best friend and all the stuff that he was complaining about on the jail phone calls to, to mom. You know, when mom was over there going, oh, Charlie, oh, Charlie. <laughs> Did y'all did y'all hear the way she said Charlie? Because I heard it. Did y'all did y'all hear that? But anyway, um, that's so Queens, we, New York. By the way, Stephen Webster uh, has some very interesting takes on a couple of these uh, jailhouse calls, which I can't play for you because the COE was out of pocket and I'm uh, tech illiterate. But we will uh, get to some of his takes. Uh, we'll do it the old-fashioned way. We will talk, discuss it uh, orally without any uh, video tonight. Uh, look at that. Joel's book now available. What about that? Um, there was a question, Lewis, I had up from 1776 Daughter about uh, just asking for a little more detail about these waivers. And then I promise I'm getting to Katie Cool Lady. But, you know, is it just as simple as putting a sheet of paper in front of Charlie Adelson and saying sign on the dotted line? By the way, I also thought and I could be very wrong about this and maybe Katie knows, but I thought um, Dan Rashbaum was originally hired to. Uh, for Donna and Harvey jointly. I didn't know that it was Charlie, uh, not the entire family. But 
the waivers? Uh, is it is it just as simple as Charlie signing off on it? I think yes. And so it's it's what the attorney would have to do is the attorney would have to advise Char- Rashbaum would have had to advise Charlie of all his rights under the Florida Bar professional rules of conduct, including the right to loyalty, the right um, it, it, the right to essentially have Rashbaum act in his best interest and turn down any cases that could cause a conflict. And so in the right to seek counsel regarding this waiver, anytime a lawyer asks a client to waive a right, that lawyer has a duty to advise that client that they have the right to seek other counsel to advise them about that waiver. And so I think that the waiver just has to be clear, knowing, and voluntary. It has to be clear what rights he's waiving. Um, He has to know and understand what rights he's waiving. And the waiver has to be voluntary. As long as a lawyer can show that all three of those boxes were checked, then theoretically the waiver could be sufficient. Again, the question is, but in this case, it's not just um, Charlie who has a waiver. I think there's also a waiver on Donna's side, right? Because here, Donna it, Donna is entitled to complete representation on her own. Part of Donna's representation might become throwing Charlie under the bus and act, an act which will be difficult for Rashbaum to do with any credibility, right? But it, her defense might be, could be that, look, Charlie did this. Charlie hired these people. Charlie was in a relationship with Magwana. Charlie paid them with his money from his safe. He only told me about this after it all happened, right? And if Rashbaum has to articulate that to a jury, that is at odds with everything he spent three weeks doing before in Charlie's trial. And so I think that, which is why the court would require a waiver on both sides. Uh, Katie, you've been, by the way, I love is that fireplace behind you is very cozy. Um, you know, I spent my time in Canada over uh, while, while Lewis was in, I think, Thailand. I was in Canada freezing my you-know-what off, and uh, I don't plan to do that again anytime soon. But Bayou Babe here says, why bring a lawyer that's already lost? Well, one big answer to that question, even uh, I know that, is Donna Adelson cannot stand being in Tallahassee. She wanted her grandkids out of there. No offense to uh, Stephen Webster. Or Louis Baptiste, but she wants out of Tallahassee and Rashbaum knows the case. Do you think, Katie, uh, that this is going to be a fatal flaw for her to try to rush things too much? Well, you know, it all depends on like if they just regurgitate that worn out defense they did on Charlie. It's yeah. I mean, listening to Louis talk about that option of well, my son did this, I caught wind of it, I helped him cover it up like any mother would do so he wouldn't get into trouble. I mean, that to me seems to be the defense that would make more sense than the extortion defense. But they'd have to kind of reinvent the wheel to go there with Donna. And if she seemed, and she thinks on those jail calls that like he did a great job and it was very convincing and everything was perfect and they were blindsided by the verdict, which is just mind blowing. You know, so, I mean, I kind of hope she does rush it and go with that same defense because we'll have, maybe we'll have a one-hour verdict on that. But if I may, I want to circle back to something Lewis was saying. I mean, I'm just sitting here taking in you guys, like, blowing my mind with all these thoughts. But, Lewis, you were saying about how Judge Everett had um, just handled this, you know, uh, same attorney on two coexisting defendants. And 
my question to you is, what's in it for the state to object to that? Would it be they're just trying to preserve the record for appeals? Or like in this case, if they were to object on Rashbaum doing both Charlie and Donna, what would be the motivation for the state strategically to make that objection? I think you hit on the head. I think that in the case where we just saw it happen, which was a it was a big drug case prosecuted by the office of the statewide prosecutor under the attorney general. And it, it was a slam dunk case. And so what the state doesn't want is the state doesn't want to get a convictions on a slam dunk case um, and then have the defendants go on appeal and say that we signed a waiver, which we could never have signed because the conflict was unwaivable. And so now the appellate court determines that there's manifest injustice because there was a conflict that wasn't waivable and that, you know, this defense attorney could never effectively represent either client. And so because a defense attorney could never effectively represent either client, kicks it back down for a new trial. And so now the state, exactly what you're saying, the state is stuck trying to case all over again with a new defense attorney. And I think it's exactly what Webster is saying mm-hmm. and that there's real risk in that if Rashbaum gets kicked off three months from now, then you have to start over. So I think it's that's exactly so why. that's what you were referring to, Stephen, when you said it's perilous and there risk, it, there's risks in preserving a verdict. Well, and, and that's the we're going to have an argument on appeal. Assumedly, yeah. Charlie's appellate lawyer, who's one of the preeminent appellate lawyers in the state of Florida, it's going to come up that Dan did not preserve certain issues for appeal by objecting, i.e., when Georgia allegedly introduced false information or facts not in evidence into her closing argument. As soon as the appellate attorney has to raise that issue, isn't Dan already in conflict with Charlie when Charlie realizes his lawyer didn't preserve his his rock solid appellate issues? Isn't that a conflict? Uh, look at this. Everyone was loving Webster's Donna impression, but I didn't know this. Uh, Katie Cool Lady, can you do the Donna coordinator, please? You do your own. One of the domestic coordinator. She's the <laughs> domestic coordinator, you know. She's in charge of all the spoons in the jail. Uh, they took a lot of spoons. She wasn't too happy about it. <laughs> I think that's a little better than Webster's. No offense to Webster, but he's got to work on his Queen's accent a little. Uh, Danielle Alexander in Jersey. Every, I think the whole country is getting hit with storms right now. Um, I'm not going to whine about Miami, but the weather is crappy here too. Cloudy and touch under 70 here, not to rub it in, but I just did. Uh, this is an interesting question uh, to Lewis from The Princess. Would Lewis have accepted Don as a client? I don't believe uh, Stephen could accept Don as a client because I'm assuming he's on the witness list again. Uh, I don't know if that witness list has been put together or even close to it. But Lewis, it's it's a it's a great question. I mean, someone asked in the chat early, earlier, why did Rashbaum take this in the first place? How do you pick and choose uh, defense cases, especially if you know you've got a lot of bad facts? So first to answer the question directly, no, under no circumstances would I have taken a case. You know, if Webster would tell you, I'm a numbers guy, you know what I mean? I, I make the numbers make sense. But it, they could have came and offered $2 million, you know, upfront payment, um, and I would have turned it down. I, I owe uh, Dan Markell a debt. You know, it's that's, I owe Dan Markell a debt that I can never repay. And so I, I would do that debt disservice by representing people accused of killing him. And I actively owe him a debt. Um, for introducing Webster and I and changing my life. And so there's no circumstance in which I could ever represent, you know, anyone accused of doing him harm since I owe him that debt 
one. Number two, I think that, look, for a defense lawyer, you know, this is this is a unique opportunity, right? Usually when you have, for example, let's think about a Jose Baez. We know that the Casey Anthony case changed Jose Baez's career. His entire career was changed by that case, his career trajectory, um, his outlook. I mean, I imagine that case is going to help provide for his children and his children's children. Right. In terms of what that case meant for his firm and so in his business. And so but if we remember that case, Casey Anthony didn't have a whole lot of money. Right. And so usually when you have the noteworthy cases, um, you end up taking a pay cut on the retainer or the fees because the case is so noteworthy. That's usually, you know, there's or um, in this case, it's unique, right? In that we're talking about it here right now on January 9th, 2024, right? And you have the Adelsons who have a whole lot of money and you have a case that's has super, you know, notoriety and is all over the world in terms of publicity. And so this case is a defense lawyer's dream. And so I think that for, for Rashbaum, it was no, there was no question in taking the case. You have a client who can pay all your bills and all your fees and hire any expert that you want and pay for all the necessary travel costs, right? And you have a case that's going to be covered on uh, court TV. Um, it's going to be it's going to be covered on, you know, STS. And so why not? Like every time we're talking about, you know, just think about how many times on this show alone, you know, we've said Rashbaum's name. How many times we've said his name and every time we say his name, you know, for him, that's adding to a brand. And, and again, it's not in this case, you know, people are saying he did a horrible job. He did a horrible job. I guarantee you that his phones were ringing during this case, mm-hmm. that his influence was growing because people from London and, and, and people in, in West Africa, you know, and people in Australia were watching, and, and now they know who Daniel Rashbaum is. Outside of this case, they never would have. And so I think there was it was a very easy decision for him to sign on a case where he would become world famous and get paid. <laughs> well put. Uh, just Jake, and this is a capitalistic society, as much as you don't like the fact that he might be representing someone that you don't like. Uh, just Jake, back to Stephen Webster. I think this is an interesting question. Uh, this is. You know, I'm obsessive by nature. If I was Don and I was sitting in the Leon County jail, I'd be banging my head on the bars about this nonstop. Looks like, uh uh-oh, hope those storms didn't just take out Lewis. He'll be back. I have no doubt. Uh, Do you think it would have made a big difference in Donna's defense, Stephen, if she had booked round trip tickets to Vietnam? She could have just said, "I, I was going to clear my head after my little boy was convicted. But now it's like this consciousness of guilt. It's, um... How do you get around that? Well, you know, on the face of it, it would. Sir, I know the defense attorney would like to have something, something that they could hide, you know, point to, um, given the fact that she said on the jail phone calls on what they people refer to as the hot mic. Um, what I think is clear, uh, which was her their plan to get out of Dodge. Um, so it certainly would help to have if she had bought booked a round trip ticket for the defense attorney to say, Oh no, she was, that was just something they said in an emotional moment there. It wasn't their intent. But I think from a practical standpoint, it, a jury would see through it just like the jury saw through the double extortion defense. 
even if they bought the round trip ticket. I don't think a jury for a second would believe that of all the moments in her life, that was the moment when she decided to go to a non-extraditable country or two of them on a round trip. And uh, Lewis said Africa was watching, and they, in fact, are. I just passed through the person's name, so apologies. But Nigeria is in the house tonight watching, so shout out uh, to Nigeria. Uh, Katie, let's talk about Charlie for a minute, and then we'll get back to all the Donna stuff. But uh, as far as we know, he's still in that lovely reception area in Chipley in the Florida panhandle, waiting to find out where he's going to spend the rest of his natural life. Have you, because I know you're in the know and you talk to everybody, have you heard anything about Charlie's uh, experience right now uh, in that reception area or any word about when he could be shipped out? It was only supposed to be two weeks. He's been there for a considerable amount of time now. I not. I wish I knew something. I haven't not heard one word. I mean, True Lifestyle, Susan from True Lifestyle, she's sort of on top of jail records and stuff like that. So yeah, I just get stuff secondhand when I happen to see it, but I haven't heard one thing. It does blow my mind that like how obsessively Donna and Charlie were talking and then like nothing. I mean, that's, you know, I stop and reflect on that sometimes like, wow, that, that is a huge, huge piece of his life that has changed. I know this is uh, kind of frowned upon by the community at large, but I get sad thinking about that just because my own mother, um, there's consequences, obviously, but it is a uh, scary thought that a mother and son will more than likely never be able to communicate again, except maybe by letter at some point, or if they see each other at Donna's trial. So uh, it's crazy. worse than a death in a way, because you know, they're out there alive and suffering somewhere in the world and you cannot t- yeah. talk to them. It, you know, it's, yeah unbelievable really that's a a good point in some ways i think it is worse than uh, dying which is so final here that person like you said is still in existence and you know you're the mother who once coddled you is no more able to do that krista k joel will your book be available on audio not only will it be available but it's going to be voiced by myself and my beautiful mother, Carmela. And it is going to be hilarious because, as you all know, the book is written in English. It's the only language I speak. My mother, however, speaks six languages and has a heavy accent. And um, she's prone to cursing at times. She's very worried about this. But uh, the book, uh, it doesn't uh, sugarcoat anything. So Carm is going to have to curse at me while voicing this audiobook and it will be available on audible she's having a nervous breakdown about the fact that people are going to hear some of her real language uh i know lewis baptiste's mother would never curse the way carmella curse i just i know that intuitively um this is a question everybody is asking uh lewis does hiring dan mean that they're going to absolutely have to stick to the same extortion theory can they change the defense in any way, shape, or form. The obvious one, I think, is, hey, we sent these guys up there to beat them up. It got out of control. They took, you know, they got carried away. It wasn't us. It was them. But is it too late for that now? Yes, I think it's I think it's too late. I think that at least what hiring uh, Rashbaum is too late. One, this case has been far too publicized, right? Um, it's it's going to be impossible. I think it's, you know, it's to pick a jury who's never heard of this case, who didn't hear about in Tallahassee. Now, of course, I think they are going to be able to pick a jury who can follow the law, listen to the evidence and make a decision based on those two things. But that, you know, their their theory of this whole extortion was so far left 
that I think everyone, including on this show, was talking about it all over the country. And so to come now and try to adopt a new theory, any theory at this point, when they've gone so far, so deep into this extortion theory, I think it's just going to be almost impossible. You know, and, and I, look, we're talking a lot about Rashbaum. Alex Morris was also hired uh, for the case. And, I, you know, Alex Morris is a very capable lawyer. He's a good lawyer, smart lawyer, um, uh, uh, deliberate lawyer. And so I think that obviously he's going to be there and hopefully, you know, provide some real sound legal advice. And he's going to be local, obviously. He's been practicing here for 20 plus years. He has all the relationships and all the connections. But I, I think you're stuck. I, I don't think, I don't see, I can't calculate a pivot uh, from this extortion, from this extortion, um, from this extortion plot. But I do think, look, and I don't like this, but I think the extortion plot works better for Donna than it did for Charlie. Right? I think if we remember the extortion defense, the defense is essentially that Katie comes to Charlie's house one night and, you know, on his couch crying, tells him what's, uh, that he's being extorted and what's going to happen and that he has to pay. And even from the way the defense was argued in the Charlie case, Donna is not made aware of this until after there's that initial exchange between uh, Charlie and Wagwana in the house that night, you know, factually. And so I think it was impossible for the jury to buy this whole extortion defense because, you know, you had to believe that somebody, uh, Katie, you know, 140 pounds came and told Charlie, you know, <laughs> six foot plus, you know, to empty a safe because people who weren't in the house we're going to come. But I think this defense is a lot better for Donna because for Donna, it doesn't have to be true. Right. And for the extortion defense for Donna, if I'm Rashbaum and I'm Alex Morris, I'm arguing that her son told her he was being extorted. That's what her son told her. It doesn't have mm -hmm. to be true that he was extorted. He could have been making it up because he because he had secretly hired them. He could have been mm -hmm. really being extorted. It doesn't matter. All that That's matters is a mother listened to her son tell him, tell her that not only was his life in danger, but that her life and her husband's life was also in danger. It, it doesn't. She didn't. She never met. What she never talked to Maguana. She never met Sigfredo. She didn't know Luis, and so she knew none of these parties. All she knew that her son was telling her that they were Latin kings and they were extorting him and they were extorting him. And so I think that that's a lot easier to sell from that mm. perspective, because it, the jury can just say, look, she was just a loving mother who believed an idiot son. But I can tell you that, you know, there's a lot of loving mothers out there who are going to you know, do whatever they can to protect their child because that's part of being a mother. And so I think that. As tough as it is, I 100% like the extortion defense in this case better than in Charlie's case. I don't love it at all, but I think it's much more effective in this case. Interesting uh, points that you make there. Uh, can Rashbaum, Stephen Webster, run messages between Charlie and Donna since they are co-conspirators? But this is the weird dynamic of this now. He's also both of their attorneys. Um is there any kind of conflict there? Can he share uh, 
I don't know, confidential information from Charlie to Donna and Donna to Charlie? Well, the court has ordered them not to have contact, and that includes indirect third-party contact. So the answer is no, we can't run messages. But by the same token, he's an attorney, and she, you know, Charlie's a witness in Adelson's case. So, you know, he has the right to interview witnesses, and the court would certainly understand that. But as far as just running messages, no. Um, that's, you know, that would be indirect third-party contact that Char that Dan or whomever was doing it uh, would be basically uh, facilitating violation of a court order. And I promise I'm getting to Katie on the appellate issue because Katie has personally dealt with that. But before we get there, Stephen Webster, you told me something interesting, and there goes Lewis, man. It must be a swirling tornado around his house. Um you told me you were talking to someone in the Department of Corrections, I think, uh, for Star Florida State Prisons. What uh, what kind of information did you uh, glean from that in terms of Charlie's future? So I had a friend ask me, would would Charlie have the same kind of access, uh, telephone access with a tablet in prison? I said, I don't know. Uh, you know, this if this technology is evolving and changing. And frankly, I don't keep up with it. Um, Thankfully, a lot of my clients don't go to prison, I guess, maybe. But, um, but so I called a friend, a captain in DOC, and he explained to me that the tablets in DOC do not have the telephonic access like the Leon County Jail tablets do. Now, they have a problem there because apparently they're Android-based, so they're real easy to jailbreak. And then once they jailbreak one, they can actually go to the charging station where they have the chargers and they can cut the the C type charging end off of one of the cords, cut the USB off another, splice that back on there, and then they can just plug that one tablet into the other tablet and they can use it as a master tablet to jailbreak every tablet in the prisons. And then they have, those calls aren't recorded, they're not monitored, and it becomes a real problem um, that they deal with. But his, his telephone access would be restricted just to phones in the dorm. Um, he said that he's almost certainly not going to be in protective management you know, they have a lot of people who consider themselves to be high profile defendants, and he doesn't believe that that will uh, he will not be in a cell. He thinks that he will be in a four four uh, level four housing security um, level four prison kind of uh, open bay dorm that probably. And I said this on the last the last time I was on your show, Joel, and I mean it, your show. I I don't want prisoners to be treated inhumanely, even if. If it's somebody that I have a personal kind of animus against, like Charlie, it's not what I want. It's not how our system should work. And I don't take any joy in thinking that that's going to be the case that Charlie's going to face. But this captain said that he's in real trouble. You know, he's a man kind of without a home. Um, unfortunately, given his religion, um, the Aryan type people, they're not going to want him. Um, and then it just doesn't leave him any real good place to land. And now that and it's such a weird dynamic. Lewis and I talked about it earlier. Are, are the Latin Kings really mad at Charlie Adelson? We don't think so. You know, I mean, he kind of threw Luis Rivera under the bus, but Luis Rivera would be deemed a snitch at this point. So I don't know the Latin Kings would have any fealty towards him. But the Latin Kings are hearing all of that information about his money. And that's what they're going to be keying in. The fact that, you know, he's got a house, the, Hale, the Whale Harbor home for sale. I heard it was, you know, listed at 1.3. Um, I guess if you take Charlie by his, his, at his word, 
he still owes the Latin Kings $133,000 at least in extortion money that he never paid. Um, so, you know, my friend said that he's really going to be in a very difficult place where he's not going to have anywhere to kind of anybody to saddle up with and hide behind. Um, and given that the tablets do give the inmates great access to public records, they're going to be probably listening to phone calls, his phone calls with Donna and Charlie and I mean, Donna and Harvey and Bree, et cetera. They're going to know about his financial assets and, it's, it's going to be a situation where my friend said there's only one gang that he might be able to get in with, and it's the outcast gang, and it's just not a gang you want to be affiliated with, not that I want to be affiliated with any gang. I've got a little Aryan Nation story for you. So I was uh, I became friends in Miami, believe it or not, with a former professional boxer um, whose grandfather was a very, very famous boxer, but I'm not going to mention the name, but perhaps the most famous boxer. Anyway, him and I, him and I become good friends and he, uh, he did time, hard time uh, for some drug offenses and uh, he had to join a gang and he joined the Aryan nation and uh, you know, he's got the tats and everything, but he told me the first day he got into prison, he wasn't given the choice and he really had to, and he got a pamphlet in prison. This is in California, um, either San Quentin or Cork and one of the real tough prisons out there. And it was, 99 reasons why Jews are the devil. That was a pamphlet he got on the first day. He had to read it and be quizzed on it. Um, as a Jewish guy myself, um, I look, I'm with Stephen. No matter what you think of Charlie Adelson, you don't want him um, being killed in prison. But uh, he is not, not in a good spot in terms of being able to sort of mix in with the crowd there. And he's going to, I don't think he realizes what he's in for. Um, Ned Smith, ever the uh, funny man, Mr. Webster, where's the beef? Alluding to that famous Wendy's commercial. I miss the bovine picture followed by this question here. Uh, that's not the question, uh, but that's interesting. Joel, my sister takes care of Ethel. What? <laughs> this is my, this is my doggy daycare. Look at this. The CEO must have put this up. My sister adores her, and Ethel adores my sis. We have rescued. Thank you so much. Please let me know when I come in there that you are Brett Jenny. Uh, let me know, and uh, thank you for taking good care of Ethel. Ethel's going stir-crazy because the weather's been crazy, and uh, when she does that, she does weird things, and then the COE starts to, she starts to growl at the COE, which is hilarious, and then the COE gets all worked up. So it's time for Ethel to go back to school. Always a weird connection on STS, and it's usually dog-related. Um, Katie, I'm coming to you on this because you're not the lawyer, and it's a lawyer question. Uh, for Meredith's two cents, I don't believe Wendy or Harvey will ever be arrested. I don't think Meredith realizes the wrath she is going to incur from STS Nation. Your thoughts. They wouldn't have allowed um, Harvey to board the plane, but he was free to do so. Do you think they are still coming for Wendy and Harvey, Katie Cool Lady? Uh, and I know it's hard to put emotions aside, but I'm talking practically speaking. Do you think Wendy and Harvey are next? A lot of people have changed their tune and said, yes, now they believe that they are. Well, I was starting to watch another uh, YouTuber doing kind of a breakdown on Harvey right before this show. Her name is La Belle V. Mm -hmm. And boy, I mean, she was convincing me that there's a lot to go after Harvey with. So I started thinking, hmm, maybe that could be next. You know, I look through a certain lens and the lens I look through is they're getting all of them. And there's just been there's been an interesting energy around Wendy. And I, you know, since 
just since Donna's arrest, like Court TV has done like 30 minute specials on Wendy and the evidence against Wendy. There's just been an interesting momentum in her direction. Um, and there's been some things that, you know, people slice and dice all the testimony and stuff that George has sort of dropped into some of her questioning that she didn't try quite go the distance with that leaves you to wonder if that's like something she has in her hip pocket about Wendy. So yeah, I think they're going to arrest Wendy. I don't know that they'll get a conviction on murder for her, but uh, I think they're going to go the distance with it. Uh, Lewis, Stephen mentioned uh, Robert, Alex Morris. That is, he goes by Alex, but his real name is Robert. Uh, what do we know about him? He's uh, fairly prominent in Tallahassee. I think it was Stephen that was mentioning him. It might have been you, but just fill us in a little bit about Alex Morris, the kind of attorney, um, what sort of things, cases he handles, et cetera, et cetera. I think, you know, Alex Morris is a defense attorney's defense attorney. He does nothing but defense work. I, I've never known him to do anything else, no personal injury, no family law no constitutional cases. I think that he devotes his full practice to defense work. Um, he does a lot of federal work. Uh, I, I think there's probably only a handful of lawyers that do more federal defense work in town than Alex Morris. Uh, I think he's been, do, you know, he's been doing defense work for 20 years, at least 20 years that I know about, maybe longer in Tallahassee, you know what I mean, in this, in this circuit, you know, Leon, Gaston, Jefferson, McCullough. And so I think that he's an extremely experienced um, defense lawyer. And I think, you know, it, he's honestly, I think he's a good, he's a good match in a way for Rashbaum. You know, and I know if everyone on this channel, you know, STS Nation knows how Rashbaum and his antics, Alex Morse is not that. You know, Alex Morse is not antics. That's not what Alex Morse is. Alex Morse is strong arguments, prudent legal arguments, selling the jury on an idea, selling the jury on a thought, but he's not, I, I don't see Alex Morris as an antics lawyer. Um, and so I, I think that he's honestly, I think there's a lot of good lawyers they could have picked in Tallahassee. I think there's, you know, we have a lot of good criminal defense attorneys. I, I definitely think that Alex is one of them. Uh, this question right back to you, Lewis. It's a super sticker from Bill Davis, smart guy, always in the chat. Lewis mentioned the extortion, extortion defense being better for Donna Adelson. How do you reconcile the vitriolic emails by Donna to Wendy and the obvious hatred Donna Adelson had for Danny Markell with an extortion defense? And so I think the way that works for me is like, if, if, again, and so one, I think I saw, I'm going to respond. If this is the Bill Davis I know, super respect, super duper, duper smart Bill Davis, if it's the one that I know. Um, I, I, but I think I have to respond to a comment first. And the comment is that I saw someone ask a question essentially are, am I concerned with giving the defense ideas? No. I mean, look, you know, like Rashbaum is at a firm with several lawyers. He's lived this case for seven years. You know, every idea that we're talking about is one that either Rashbaum or a lawyer on his team has considered. They've lived this case. You know, I mean, it's been in their entire life for years. And so I don't think I'm necessarily like, you know, giving the defense ideas or thoughts. I like to think of myself as super smart, but not so smart that I'm thinking of something that no one else has thought of. So one, to address that. Two, I think, you know, Bill Davis, Bill, here's how I would do it. I think, look, for me, I just frame that as a ugly custody battle, the ugly custody battle. There's one reason I don't do family law. I don't do family law because 
it's so heartbreaking and it gets so ugly and it's so horrible on all sides. You know, if, if, if you're, there is no, I tell people in family law, there's rarely a right side, right? And when you're talking about custody and kids, people lose their sanity, right? If, if, if I can, I can see, I don't know about Rashbaum, I can see Alex Morse selling the jury on, this was a grandmother who wanted to be next to her grandkids. She, you know, she wanted to say anything. She wanted, she wanted Wendy to win the case so that her kids could, she could be next to her grandkids. If you want to convict her or something, convict her of being a loving grandmother who wanted her grandkids next to her. And so just as much as she hated Dan Markell was her love and her desire to have her grandkids next to her. And Dan Markell was the impediment to that happening. Now, here's the question, members of the jury. Does that mean she's willing to kill him for? That's what they're asking you to believe. They're asking you to believe that because she sent hateful emails in a child custody case that she got on trampoline and jumped to murder. That's what they're asking you to believe, right? And so I think that that's not a, that's not a, um, I, I think you can get around the emails. I think that the emails in of, in of themselves because of the custody case, I don't think you get around all the evidence. I think that uh, Georgia Kaplan is gonna do a great job with Sarah Dugan and convict Donna. Um, but I don't think that those emails in of themselves are uh, so hard to get around if you frame it in a custody space. Because look, let's be honest. If, if you went and asked for the emails in a family law court that parents send each other, I guarantee you, you would see just as bad as what you see in Donna's email because I mean, it's the wild, wild west there, and the in the comments and the things that happen are crazy. Um, but I think that she's going to be convicted. I I, I think uh, the evidence is there's a mountain mountains of evidence against her. But I don't think that I think I don't think the emails themselves are necessarily the smoking gun, in, insofar as they can't be overcome. Uh, Stephen Webster, you put me in touch with a very smart guy who's a lawyer and a digital forensics expert named John Sawicki, who was on my show. And obviously they've got uh, forensic evidence. They've got uh, iPads and um, cell phones. If Donna rushes it, according to Brown and Beachy Vlogs, they lose the time, meaning the state does, to get really dig into the digital forensics. Um, are you hearing anything um, at all? There was two more search warrants uh, that were filed for yesterday, apparently revolving around uh, computers. Have you heard anything at all about, uh, you know, and it, it, trying to get some information off of these devices? I know that they're working on it. That's all I know. I haven't heard anything as far as the progress that's been made. I wish I, I could have heard that. I don't know that I would share it here if I did hear anything like that, but mm -hmm. that's a great point that's made by uh, the Brown and Beachy, I think it was. Um, you know, that's that certainly could be the one upside here to trying to force this uh, to a speedy trial. I don't know if that's really the intent, but um, yeah. that would. And then having Dan on the case would make sense there because at least he has done the work. We know that. I don't think anybody can doubt that Dan did a ton of work uh, listening to everything, pouring over every piece of evidence. I have every confidence that Dan Rashbaum has done that. And he could make up for that deficit for Alex Morris, um, who I just want to say, like Lewis said, Alex is a fantastic attorney. Um, I think people 
will like him. I think juries in Tallahassee have liked him for 20 plus years that I've been here working around him. Um, very sharp dresser and uh, very classy, um, you know, very lawyerly guy. Uh, so then, that, you know, maybe that's a, a real reason to try to force the issue to speed. Look at this, Lindsay Shea, the holy grail of best guests. Don't think I've ever seen that. Uh, Lewis is a credit to Professor Dan Markell, RIP. Uh, hey, Mona, admitting in front of the masses all the way to Nigeria that she's taken her laptop into the kitchen more times than she would like to admit. Maybe <laughs> listen uh, on the audio platforms and you can take us on your cell phone instead of dragging that big, heavy laptop. So, Katie Cool Lady, I was talking about this an hour ago, and an hour later, we're finally getting to it. This notice of appeal was filed on behalf of Charlie Adelson on December 31st, the last day of 2023. It was just a notice of appeal. I believe there's 90 days to actually write the motion. And the attorney is uh, this guy, Michael Ufferman, who uh, both of the other attorneys on our panel say he's one of the preeminent appellate attorneys in the state of Florida. Um, they're obviously going to look for errors stuff that uh, happened that maybe Judge Everett made a mistake, anything that they can get their claws on. But we have become friends with, you know, Ruth Markell and Phil Markell and Shelly Markell. What is it like, you know, you had a sister that was tragically murdered. And uh, how long have you been dealing with all the appeals processes? 33 years I've been in the appellate process and still actively dealing with it. It's never died down for 33 years. The only the only way that it died down was one of her killers died of natural causes in prison, and then it stopped on that one. So, yeah, I know the appeals process very well from, from this standpoint. And, um, I mean, I don't want to dig too much, but, how, you know, how do you, do you get notified every time there's some sort of new appeal, and does it bring back, like, the rush of emotion about all that happened and all that had transpired? <laughs> We could do a whole show on this, Joel. And and a part of me is like you have these. Maybe we should. Well, yeah, maybe we should actually because you have these incredible guests in these boxes below me that I like kind of don't want to like flip into the subject because I want to pick their I want to hear more of what they have to say. Um, so just well, run. Well, well let's 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 plan to do a show on it. Maybe next yeah, week it, we'll bring it, you back. Subject, there's a lot to it. And and I just Steven and Lewis are captivating me and I kind of want to hear more of what they Hey, throw a, throw a question out at him. Yeah, uh, so it's all you. This is the question I have. Um, Lewis, when you were talking about the um, Donna's emails, um, and this is to, to either of you, is that, you know, most trials, including our own that I've sat through or watched, what the defense is doing is just poking holes in the, in the prosecution's case. You know, that's, and a lot of times they don't even call witnesses. They're not offering an affirmative defense. They're not creating their own story. And, you know, when I hear you make that argument for those emails, like, you know, I, I would be used to that being happening in the next piece of evidence. And let's tear that apart. and Let's tear that apart and hoping people string together some sort of reasonable doubt. Do you think that that is a, a, a way they should have gone in Charlie's trial versus coming up with this affirmative defense and that they would have had better success with that strategy? Yeah, I think I think that given all the and so you're right. So first, you're right. Normally, a strategy is to just attack the state's evidence 
and versus putting up your own theory. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's normally the, the easiest route. I think that given all the evidence against Charlie, it forced the defense to offer a theory, right? When, when there's all this evidence that's against Charlie, it wouldn't have been sufficient to just attack the state and just to say, well, those emails are from Donna, not from Charlie. And that this custody, Charlie didn't care about the custody battle. It was Donna. In a normal case, that would be sufficient. But in a criminal case like this, where there's just literally, I keep saying it, mountains of evidence against Charlie, I think that they had no choice but to offer a theory. You know, I, I, obviously they didn't offer a good one. I, I don't like it. I think it's not a good, this whole extortion was not a great theory. The jury clearly didn't like it. Um, but I think that in, in this case, given all the evidence, but you know, I, I want to see Webster thinks he's been doing it longer than me. Yeah. Well, I, let me just hop in for one second to say I've got some sources very close to the case. And from what I've been told, uh, that extortion theory was not a Daniel Rashbaum decision. It was coming from Charlie Adelson, apparently, who really, truly, according to the sources, believed this, believed this extortion theory. I don't know. You know, I, I call it O.J. Simpsonitis, where you've convinced yourself of something that might not be completely true. But um you know, I don't know that it would have been Rashbaum's first choice for defense. But Steve, go ahead. I agree with what Lewis just said. You know, I with the evidence that is there against both of them, honestly, um, with the bump and all of the other things, and <clears throat> the addition now with the, the jail phone calls and the flight and everything else, um, I don't know that. Alex or Dan could sit there and just poke holes in every piece of evidence and hope at the end of the day that the jury was going to sign off. You know, it's like Lewis said when he was explaining his answer to the emails, you know, he can give an answer to that one, but keep going, keep peppering them. And at some point, you know, even Lewis, as fantastic as Lewis is, is going to wave the white flag. Um, and frankly, I was shocked that they came up with a theory because Lewis and I talked about it over and over again. I was like, what are, how are they going to, what are they going to use as a defense? Because we never saw poking holes and in individual pieces of evidence as, you know, carrying the day. I couldn't, I personally could not come up with a theory that could at least provide some sort of plausible, I guess, explanation. I don't even want to give it that much credit, but some sort of answer to every piece of evidence. And in a funny way, the, the extortion theory did that. But it's the it was just terrible. I mean, it was flawed, but at least it did give them something to hide behind every time Georgia would stand up and introduce another exhibit. I think it's time yeah, for us to all move to uh, Nigeria. Sadiq Farouk was the person I was talking about. Weather all over Nigeria is wonderful. We might all have to come there and visit you. Sadiq, go ahead, Lewis. And I agree. I think I told Webster, I literally I left court in the afternoon and I called him and I said, this is insane. It was the point at which um, the, the defense conceded that Charlie had stapled all of this money, to, had all this money stapled together. And I called Webster and I said, no way. This is, there's no way. And so I, I didn't like this whole extortion theory because it, you gave up too much. You know, you, you gave up too much ground in hopes that you could flip a juror, right? And to argue the extortion, it's almost like um, it's what's the best way to say it? It's like if you argue self-defense, right? Um, it, it, if you argue self-defense, you necessarily have to admit to the underlying act. 
right? That's why self-defense is such a dangerous defense. If you argue that you shot this person and it was self-defense, you have to admit to shooting the person, which is a crime in of itself. Self-defense only excuses that crime, right? But in making that argument, you have to admit to the crime itself, thereby admitting to guilt, hoping that self-defense will excuse that guilty act or that criminal act, right? And so that's kind of like, which is why it's so dangerous for defense lawyers to use. That's kind of like what this was in a way. This extortion defense was the same in that you admitted to handing Magwana stapled money for the people who killed Dan Markell. There's no question that Luis Rivera and Sigfredo killed Dan Markell. And your extortion defense, you necessarily, I walked out of the court when I called up and I said, this is crazy. I, I called him and said, they just admitted that they handed and gave the killers a hundred plus thousand dollars. That's it for me. You know, this is, I, I like Monopoly, pass, go, you know, collect 200. It's over, right? I think if I'm a juror, once I know that you handed the killers a hundred thousand dollars, I don't care how you try to frame it. There's no way you could frame it to get you with a not guilty for me. You just admitted to handing them the payment for the murder. And so that was my problem with it. It, it was just, it gave up way too much ground. Mm -hmm. And like you're saying, Kate, I think I think they might've been better off, Kate. I really do believe just, if, if, all, if there was no other defense outside of the extortion, just attacking, you know, it, but I wouldn't have given up. And, I, and so it doesn't surprise me when you say that, you know, that you, you heard sources say that that didn't come from Rashbaum, that was a Charlie idea. That makes total sense to me because that defense gave up too much ground. When he admitted to that stapled money, I mean, the courtroom, I think you were there, the courtroom was like, you know, you could hear a pin drop. It was like everyone in the courtroom because no one, I don't know if Georgia knew that was coming. I definitely had no idea. Uh, sweet and salty to, uh, to Webster. Is there a way, when do we find out where Charlie's headed in terms of uh, which state prison? At what point do they uh, let the public know? Do you know? Well, it's it'll be public record. It's on the Florida Department of Correction inmate offender search uh, tab. You can search and you can look at where Charlie Adelson is right now. And I um, I didn't have any idea like what what we were going to be looking at with this sort of high profile guy and with kind of the considerations here. I spoke to a friend in DOC and he thinks that you know it would be probably. A month and a half, two months wouldn't be unreasonable. It could be more. You know, they, it depends on they have limited places they can put Charles Anderson. He has to go to a level four type camp. Um, and so there's only so many beds available. You know, he's going to one day hope to get into a uh, kind of a privilege camp where they have preferential privileges. But the only way you, he will ever get there is he'd have to be kind of reclassified in essence down um, as far as his risk. And the only way he could do that is with years and years of good behavior, which my friend said, it doesn't look like real, a likely possibility. He'll have any opportunity for good behavior because he's either going to have to fight for his freedom or fight for his life. Unfortunately, you know, he's going to really be tested in there or he's going to have to try to constantly check in to protect the management. And, and they don't just give that to you because you asked for it. So unfortunately, I think a lot of the inmates that feel like they really need that, they resort to violence or some other way to force protected management type custody. But then that's a disciplinary report, which will prevent him from ever going to the, the camps that are 
you know, more relaxed. So my my friend said that he would expect him to probably go to Century, um, which he doesn't. He said it's a tough place. Uh, he said, you know, that would be better than Charlie going somewhere south. My friend said that if he went south, the Latin King presence, it's very strong in prison in Florida, period. But down south, there is no doubt they're running the show. Um, and basically up here with the amount of money that's on the table as allegedly being owed to the Latin Kings, my friend said, look, the Latin Kings, even if there's a, another gang in the prison that tried to step in to maybe want to protect Charlie, they would just offer them a cut of the 130 they think they're owed. And um, he said, you know, so he's, but I expect within a month um, that he will be relocated uh, to a, a different camp. And you can find it right there on the, on the website. If he's up north, he's going to be far from his child, which is also uh, sad for that kid. Uh, sad no matter what. Uh, shout out to friend of the show, Analytical Blarney AB, for gifting 20-plus memberships tonight. That's why I always say best guess says it right behind me, actually. Other side. I could never be a weatherman. Better community. Um, shout out. This is a very touchy subject here for the uh, Knowles fans. But shout out to Dwayne Harris, who lives in Detroit. On Michigan's win last night, uh, Seminoles wanted to be in that national championship championship game. I'm not going to harp on it, but congrats to Go Blue. And by the way, one of my closest friends in the world is a chief meteorologist in Tucson who grew up in Ann Arbor. So he was ecstatic that uh, Michigan won. Shout out to Matt Road, who is the chief weatherman at KVOA, Squatchaholic. Do me a favor and send him some hate mail tonight that will bring me a lot of joy. Tell him that his forecasts have been way off. Um, Stephen, back to you about this uh, from Jane Anderson, and we'll start to wrap up in a few moments. I got some tweets and emails ahead of the show. Ask one of the lawyers, that's you, Stephen, um, if they can get Donna off with this super triple extortion story, as she puts it, would that open the door for an appeal or overturning Charlie's sentence? Does one have to do with another? In other words, they go in with the same theory. Somehow, miraculously, Daniel Rashbaum gets a victory using the same uh, extortion theory. Does that do anything for Charlie's case? No, it wouldn't matter for Charlie's conviction. Um, you know, there's he had his jury. They picked his jury. His jury convicted him. Uh, his appeal is going to have to come from what occurred in his courtroom. And unless there was some sort of monumental evidence or the state argued something that was totally um, at odds with what the evidence they presented in Charlie's case that they could point to as the state taking uh, an adverse position in the same um, litigation. But no, Charlie's going to have to find an appellate issue. And he, he does have a wonderful appellate attorney. But it's, he's going to have to scour that that transcript and that record in front of him to find his appeals. Uh, this is another case right across the top of the state in Jacksonville. Jose Baez is allegedly getting 200000 a month. That is Louis Baptiste money for representing Shanna Gardner, who had, hired, uh, who had Jared Bridegan killed. Um, Louis would take that case, Jose. So get him in there. Get him in on uh, as co-counsel. Uh, this question kept coming up yesterday, uh, which I didn't even think about, but it's, it has to do with paying back the state for costs, meaning through Charlie Adelson, because of Charlie Adelson's trial. John Smith corrected uh, maybe Tim Jansen from last night's show, who said they couldn't go after him. But John Smith today says, I think the state can go after Charlie for, quote unquote, 
cost of prosecution. Georgia and the judge referenced this in court, um, and he sent me a link. Do you know anything about this, Stephen Webster? Can the state basically, for lack of a better term, sue Charlie Adelson for the cost of the case? Yes, and it includes investigative costs. Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, they do it more in the smaller counties um, where they have you know big drug arrests and those sort of things, and they'll go back and they'll actually find a billable rate for the officers and the detectives and the investigators who work on the case. And that's what I've been thinking about. I, I don't know how the state is going to assimilate all of that information. I don't know how, how deep of a dive they're going to do on it, but think about all of the hours of wiretaps that you know the, those officers that are out there monitoring those wiretaps and then having to go over them and and yet but yes it could be astronomical and i mean i don't know why the state wouldn't go after it. every penny of it. Um, that's an interesting point yeah it is um katie cool lady must love dogs great name uh do you think charlie is going to be called to testify and wendy uh, hope not on the same day. Charlie might ask her out. Of course, he mistook her for being a hot chick in the uh, gallery. Um, what do you think? You think that we're going to see Charlie at this trial? What's your gut tell you? I, If they're going with the extortion theory, I think he's going to have to, you know, because he's like the only person that if they want the jury to buy that theory, he's the only one to explain it. So I think he's going to have to. I, I don't know about Wendy. And any thoughts, um, Katie, on on somebody flipping on somebody? Any any greater odds on someone was even saying, "What if what if Donna flipped on Charlie?" I can never see that happening. But any thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I think of the three of them, the one who is most out for themselves is Wendy, and she's the most protected. So I think, I mean, I don't know how these things work, but I think just psychologically. If the heat was coming onto her too hard and she was looking at her options and she was really looking at a possibility of arrest and trial and thought that she could make a deal by definitely she'd turn on Charlie in a heartbeat if she thought she could serve that up. But, you know, you can't take a deal that's not offered to you. So um, I don't know. I mean, I think the best thing would be for Donna and Charlie to team up together through Rashbaum and flip on Wendy. I think that would be their only chance right now, but I, I don't think they're going to do that. But I think that would be their only chance if the state would take a deal, you know. Uh, Lewis, speaking about the state, what are, you know, Georgia and Sarah Dugan know this case literally like the back of their hand. But what are they doing day to day right now to prepare for Donna Adelson, if anything? I think they're, you know, I think that they have a weekly meeting probably because, I mean, you have to remember, you know, uh, they're both division chiefs, so they both still have full caseloads. I know that I know a, a, one of my good friends is about to try a murder case against Sarah Dugan in three weeks, you mm-hmm. know, an entire separately first degree murder case. And so you have to keep in mind, which I think makes it makes their behavior in their work in this case more impressive that they are both simultaneously trying other murder cases while still working on this case. And so this isn't like this is just their in. in not only other murder cases, they still have other sexual batteries and burglaries um, and other attempted murders and serious cases that they're working on. Um, I think that they probably have a weekly meeting with the case agent, you know, with the with Newland, the uh, chief investigator for the state attorney's office, where they go over any new developments, they go over any subpoenas, any witness issues, uh, asking him to, if they want something chased down or something investigated. 
Of course, we know that Alex Morris and Rashbaum are also going to be making more discovery requests. They're going to be asking the state to get them more discovery, especially coming outside of Charlie's trial. And so, of course, they're probably meeting weekly to respond to those discovery requests that they're requesting. But one thing I will say is that that I really appreciate is that the state didn't go after um, the murder charge, didn't go after, excuse me, uh, the death penalty in uh, Charlie's case. I appreciate it first because I know that uh, Professor Markell was against the death penalty, so I don't think he would have liked it used in his honor. But secondly, the problem is with the death penalty is that once you impose it, you give this person years of appeals that almost never run out. You know, and I hate to bring it up, but you know, you, it, it's the death penalty literally becomes, you know, it, it's outside of the guilty verdict, which is, which is supposed to give that family some form of closure. When there's a death penalty, they don't get that closure. It's the Band-Aid that they're every appeal, every time they're ripping it off and they're poking in that wound every time. And so, but thank God that Charlie's not going to have that. When, you know, because he got life in prison, he's going to get his appeals. And once they're finished, which they will be in a couple of years, they're going to be done. He's going to have, you know, I imagine in three to four years time now, he'll have no more appeals. He would have exhausted his appeals. And he'll just be doing time. You know, obviously, I think Ufferman's a super capable lawyer. Um, I I think he's one of the best in Florida, best in the Southeast. But I also think that Judge Everett did a great job of keeping this trial clean. It's like what Webster said two shows ago. He said that Judge Everett stopped Rashbaum from introducing evidence that could have been bad for Charlie. You know what I mean? And so just to protect the record. So I think that Judge Everett did such a great job protecting the record. They're not going to find anything to overturn this case on. So as it relates to him, I think that, you know, that the Markells will have some closure in four years and they won't be dealing with an appeal from Charlie 20 years from now. And I think that I think that that's an amazing thing. Um, Shout out to Mary there for ordering pre-ordering the book. Um, Steve Webster and I were talking today back and forth. There was a call. I called it the Enzo call about Charlie's dog. Uh, we'll wrap up with this and then we'll get final thoughts. But Stephen Webster, take us back. You were re-listening uh, to the some of the calls. And this one was uh, you said something interesting when Charlie's discussing his dog, Enzo. What did you notice about that? You know, and I, I know that some of these some of these folks have a lot more information. So I'm really sending a challenge out to all of your listeners and the, and the folks who are really following this. But I was on a a road trip driving 10 hours and I was listening to some of these calls with my son and we were laughing, but, um, I, he mentioned Enzo. I didn't really understand it. And then, but he went back and he said at one point that when he was talking about buying the new dog, because he wanted to kind of turn a new leaf over in his life, that, that he did, he, he got cycling on that. He didn't trust his gut. And he said, you know, I saw when he was bit, and I saw him jump back and yell. And you don't do that if a spider bites you. And I should I should have trusted my gut and I shouldn't have listened to that veterinarian. But because of the day that it happened on, I wasn't in my right mind. And so my I wasn't thinking clearly, but I should have trusted my gut and protected my dog. And he said, and I also should have seen it as a sign because of the date that it happened on. I should have seen it as a sign that I should go. 
And it's hard to hear it. And it's in, it's actually in a couple of different calls where he talks about that episode. But I'm really curious, and I hope your listeners, maybe somebody can figure out what day Enzo was bit by a rattlesnake, or I'm assuming it was a snake. Um, STS Nation, go to work, figure out what day Enzo was uh, bitten. Um, and uh, that could provide Stephen Webster with some more insight. Then you also talked about the what I titled the evil, evil Donna call. Uh, you're talking about when uh, Charlie's talking about not recognizing Wendy. What did you what did you take away from that call? Yeah, go back and listen to it, Katie, because I, you may have picked up on it. I didn't because when you first hear it, you're so dismayed at the fact that Charlie is talking about his sister and how hot she was and he didn't recognize her and he was kind of halfway flirting with his sister in court. But as he says that, Donna says, and she was sitting directly in front of the Markells and then she laughs. And it's really chilling and disgusting because these people that have clearly suffered immeasurably, um, it's almost like it's not enough. Every time she, you know, Donna Adelson observes them suffering a little bit more, it brings her nothing but joy. And this brings me joy. Look at this, Pat O'Brien. I just subscribed to Katie's channel. Steve Cohen, who does a lot of the booking behind the scenes, he always says a rising tide lifts all ships, and we are here to support each other as content creators. So please do subscribe to Katie's channel. Uh, it is interesting. Uh, the COE was going through this. The work as a content creator never stops. Let me tell you that. Um, come back and check on my marriage in about five years or maybe five months. I don't know. But late last night, the COE was going through uh, prison logs of Donna's jail activity or jail activity, not prison. And uh, shout out to Gigi McKelvey of Pretty Lies and Alibis, another amazing podcast. And she's done a lot of deep dives. But the prison guards did check on Donna 113 times in a single day. And she's no longer, from what we understand, in direct observation. She's in whatever the other term is for quasi direct observation. So it's not really a suicide watch, but they are checking her out 113 times um, in a single day. Now, for those who do not know, Kathy Monkman Hyam, whose last name it took me a little while to get, but I think I'm there now, uh, is also Katie Coolady. She has her own channel. Katie, tell everyone what you do on the channel and also your final thoughts here tonight. I got to get these two high-priced attorneys. You heard Jose Bias is making 200K a month. I can't keep these guys too long. Uh, Katie, your final thoughts. Well, on my channel, it started because I went to the trial and I wanted to watch the jurors. That was my, one of my, well, to support the family, but also to watch the jurors. And I needed a place to just deposit my observations. So like literally on the drive to Tallahassee, I thought, well, I'll create a YouTube channel and I could just speak into my phone and do that. It started with that. And of course, just talking about this trial and talking about the experience of being in Tallahassee and all that, but it sort of morphed into something else. And so my community has become because I am a survivor, I am a um, victim's family member, and I've been dealing with it for so long. And so it's and and I have really a pretty kick-ass life right now, considering all that I've been through. So it's I've sort of attracted a community of people that are interested in uh, trauma recovery and and building a life that's worth living. And after having gone through really horrible tragedy, which I've really feel like I've done and I'm constantly doing. So we talk a lot about those kind of themes now while we're kind of on a little hiatus of this trial. I don't talk about any other 
true crime things on my channel at all. I do want to, uh, first of all, I want to say these guys have been amazing to be on this panel with because I've learned so much. And frankly, being a victim's family member, I'm not always that open to attorneys that aren't prosecutors, to be honest with you, because, you know, I've been traumatized over the years. And, and these two men speak in a language that I have an open mind to and I have a lot of respect for and I've learned a lot from. And that means a lot to me um, that that. Um, that I can be a person, that, that people like that can invite me into a world that I can enter. So I really appreciate that. Um, it's rare for me to feel that way. Um, and to spin off on what Lewis was saying is that I have been dealing with the death penalty for 33 years. And he's exactly right. And I am glad that Dan, that the that Charlie did not get the death penalty because it is torturous for victims' family members. The worst treatment that I've ever had during this process process has been from appellate lawyers and their investigators. So they have tortured my family to the point where we went to the AG's office begging to drop the death penalty on the one that was remaining on death row because we just cried uncle. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a badass person, but I reached a breaking point. So, you know, that's, that's for another show, but I am talking about that on my channel too. Um, and then, you know, just to, to, to round it up is that, you know, in one of our appeals that went for seven years, one appeal went for seven years, cost taxpayers $10 million, one appeal. Um, her name was not allowed to be mentioned in the appeal. That's a whole other story. But her name was disallowed in the appeal for the sentence for the killers who murdered her. Her name was disallowed to be mentioned. So I am a big person about mentioning the victim's name. And so I want to end this on mentioning the name of Dan Markell. Really appreciate that Lewis started it out with that. That means a lot to me that his name keeps being spoken about this trial. I'm so effing sick of the Adelson name and hearing it over and over and over. So I'm going to end this by saying Dan Markell, justice for Dan Markell, Ruth Markell, Phil Markell, Shelley Markell are constantly in my thoughts, as are those boys of Dan Markell's children. That's it. Very well said, Katie Cool Lady. Ben and Lincoln are the two children. Um, if you don't know Louis Baptiste, get used to him. He's uh, becoming a best guest, a regular best guest on the show. One half of Webster and Baptiste, attorneys at law in Tallahassee. His partner sitting to his left on these little boxes. Uh, Louis Baptiste was also a student of Dan Markell. A question from Nikki uh, here for you. Don't you think Donna? Uh, would turn on Charlie for her freedom. Um, find that hard to believe. Although, I don't know. I People do weirder things. Lewis, what about that in your final thoughts? Oh, you're muted. You got to unmute yourself. Sorry about that. It's my fault. So I don't think so. I think that um, everything that we've seen about Donna, I don't think there's anything that in the evidence, I don't think there's anything that would support an inference that she's going to flip on Charlie, including... The most recent thing that happened just today is hiring Rashbaum. If you're going to flip on Charlie, you don't hire Charlie's lawyer. You go hire a different lawyer who has clean hands. And so I think that by hiring Rashbaum, that's almost a very clear indication that she's not going to flip. Um, I, I end this show with just saying what Katie said was so powerful. You know, it's the words exactly what out of my mouth and what I was thinking. So often we talk about Donald Adelson and Charlie Adelson and Harb, and, and instead of talking about Dan Markell. Um, and so I end every show with the same call is that we pray for the Markells because I was blessed to know Markell for four, Professor Markell for four months. And in just four months, he changed my life. You know, I, I, I the, 
I, I'm able to provide for my family and help, you know, I, I've been able to help thousands and hundreds of people. It's because of Dan Markell believed in me enough to tell Webster to give me a chance, um, a chance that I don't know that I would have had without Dan Markell. And so, you know, th this whole notion of Webster Baptiste and everything we do, Dan Markell is not just a building block. You know, he's a pillar um, in everything that Webster and Baptiste will ever do. And so I, I, I say his name gratefully, humbly, in real, gra in true gratitude um, for what Dan Markell did for me, even though he didn't owe me anything, only knew me for four months, but he still thought enough and, and wanted to make, recommend me and change my life. And so, um, I ask that we pray for his family, you know, that we pray for his children because, you know, for, for what he called them and I only knew them as Lincoln and Ben Ben, didn't know, that, didn't know what their real names were until, you know, 10 years later. But I know that he loved those boys. And I pray that they grow up knowing that they had a father who loved them, that despite all the potential brainwashing, all the media, all the drama, I pray they can just understand that, look, I only knew your dad for four months but I know that he loved you and there's nothing that he wouldn't have done or given up for you. I know that in just four months. And so I ask that we just pray for those kids that, 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 that God's peace surrounds them and that he gives them peace and the ability to endure because I can't imagine how hard this must be to be a child and live with the fact that your father was murdered and people are saying your mom did it. You know, we forget that for, you know, because of we want the Adelsons prosecuted. I want the Adelsons prosecuted so much, but this must be impossible to go through for teenagers. And so I pray their peace and I pray that God will bless and surround them. And I pray uh, for all the Markels that they will be able to connect and that they will be able to form strong bonds and that and, and that God will wrap them in Jesus's perfect peace. Yeah. And uh Lewis is a man of God, and Dan Markell was uh, getting much more into Judaism when his life was taken from him. So uh, I think he would have probably been at a point that Lewis is right now. Um, Jazzy, a super sticker, $20 here. Do you think Harvey, this one's for you, Webster, is trying to distance himself from Donna? He's only answering a few of her jail calls, hashtag dysfunctional family. Uh, you think there's anything going on in that regard? And your final thoughts tonight, Stephen? I do believe that, and I've, it's a real sticky wicket that they're in and trying to keep them from talking, and obviously the release of the phone calls will make that far more complicated for them. Um, as far as my final thoughts, I, uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm going to be repetitive here over things I've said in the past, but Katie, a cool lady, it's wonderful to see you again. Um, you know, I enjoy your coffee talks, and I've really enjoyed uh, your finding your channel and, and your, the content and the information you bring. It's a very important, important voice that you add is the victim's voice. Um, you know, Wendy, um, sorry, but, um, but Ruth Markell's book, uh, the unveiling, I encourage people to read it. It was very illuminating to me. Uh, this case in particular offers a new kind of side to victimhood that I had never really understood as far as the trial life, as Ruth describes it, and the, the financial toll and the emotional toll that takes on a victim's family, especially given these circumstances where we're talking about multiple trials over multiple years. Um, and 
as I said in a prior podcast, Joel, thank you for having me on your show and giving me an opportunity to say these things. You know, my wife was the victim. Um, her brother was killed by a drunk driver. So I know the pain that a sister goes through um, when a family member is killed. I, I, I live with it every day, Katie. Um, and I know that it doesn't go away for any of the family. You know, closure, I think, is a kind of a, a term of art that psychology uses, um, but it's, it's not real uh, for family members who lose someone. Um, going back to what Lewis said, I will just say, you know, that Dan changed my life. Lewis said it, you know, he introduced me to Lewis and sure, you know, I was a lawyer at the time Lewis wasn't, but the idea that Lewis wasn't going to provide for his family is I think nonsense. We can all see that here. Uh, he didn't need Stephen Webster to provide for his family. But what Dan did is he gave me a true brother in this world that is my true ally in this world. And he gave me a voice to share um, and trying to build a law firm where we do, I hope, good work and work together. And no matter, no matter what, he's changed my life and my children's lives because he's been a part of my life. And Dan gave that to me as well. And, you know, going back to that, you know, Dan's children, I can't come on here and not say it. Uh, just what Lewis said. Um, you know, there was one jail phone call I listened to where it was discussed that uh, the the Adelson's finally made uh, the, the grandchildren available for Ruth and Phil to visit with. And in that visit, they weren't overly emotional. They didn't kiss them a lot or whatever. And I would just say that I promise you, it's not because they didn't want to. You know, you're talking about a family that they're not, they have become estranged from you, not because of anything they ever chose, not because of anything they wanted. I promise you that's not the way they wanted it. They would have, they would much prefer to have had all of years and years of kisses and hugs. But out of respect for you, I think that they went into that meeting with an understanding that they didn't want to, you know, do anything that would make you feel uncomfortable. So they just came in and rather than suddenly being grabbed up by people you don't know, you've never had a chance to know, and they're kissing you and hugging all over you, they tried to show you the respect to just kind of ease into it. And I, to the extent that somebody's trying to spin a narrative to you that it's because they didn't want to kiss you or hug you, I promise you that's nonsense. And uh, it extended to Dan right through the family and Shelly Markell, the sister who's also a victim here. God bless all of you. And um, you know, to the extent that I'm allowed to come on these shows and speak, I hope that I do justice for you and your family. Uh, you certainly do. And uh, as I always say, it's not just a tagline. It is our reality, the best guess in true crime. And over the last... One hour and 37 minutes, you just found out why. The fastest hour and a half in all of YouTube. Uh, and by the way, I'm just uh, a radio face on YouTube. Uh, there's an entire team here. Got the COE who runs the show, both uh, family-wise and podcast-wise. She does it all. Um, and we've got Space Coast on the West Coast. You've got Steve, Meeve, Moen, Cohen booking a lot of these amazing guests. And then, of course, the mods here. I am not T-Pain. Gen X Granny, Copper Horse, Frankie Figs, Shaquille O'Meal. Look what Ned Smith says. Even the STS mods are fun. We truly are uh, the best community, not just in true crime, but on YouTube. So screw everyone else. We've got the best community. Uh, there it is. I didn't put that up. That is the uh, COE putting up. That is the pre-order. Uh, I saw Ned Smith asking about Audible. Audible still has to be recorded. Then it will be available. The book itself won't be in bookstores till May 14th. It is honestly the most important story. And I was in news for 27 years. The most important story 
that I have ever told. And I think it is one that you guys will really, really um, get a lot out of hearing besides just the curse words. And yes, Karn can curse in six different languages. I know a lot of crazy curse words in Serbian. I don't have no idea what they mean. Um, she hasn't used those in a long time, but growing up, I remember that. Uh, quick reminder, and by the way, speaking of Carm, I am bringing her out of retirement. She does not know this, but for the 4 o'clock show tomorrow, I'm going to bring her on because she is a licensed therapist, and it's a domestic violence case. We're doing the OnlyFans murder. We have Christian Obumseli, civil attorney, joining us tomorrow. It is the uh, Courtney Clenny case. Again, the OnlyFans slash Instagram model. And then back tomorrow night, 7 p.m. Eastern time, we are going to do the Jennifer Farber Dulos murder story introduction. And uh, the ex-girlfriend, uh, uh, I should say the girlfriend, the former girlfriend of the ex-husband who is now deceased, Michelle Traconis, her trial, this is a very high-profile trial beginning in Stamford, Connecticut on Thursday. So all of that coming to you tomorrow. Until then, love you, America. I made a list. Love you, Nigeria. Love you, Nicaragua. Love you, New Zealand. Love you, Scotland. Love you, the Republic of Ireland. Love you, Tallahassee, Florida. And of course, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, the home of Dan Martellus. Katie Cool Lady said, Justice final seconds of the game a chance to score and the chance has gone begging if your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities get the mvp you deserve Get Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.